Our scripture reading tonight comes from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Our text is verses 16 and 17. I'll begin this evening in verse 10 for some of the context here. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. As we turn to this book once again, let's give our attention to the trustworthy Word of God. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for giving us the word of truth. We ask now that you would sanctify us through it and that you would give us a clear understanding of it, that we might know you all the better, the power of your resurrection and the power of your salvation that you have wrought among the children of men. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 19th century, England had a great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and perhaps through his work and labors as a pastor more than anyone else, God kept the churches in London faithful through that 19th century. In the 20th century, God gave London, once again, a great preacher, and that was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a minister in the middle of the 20th century from the 30s all the way up even almost until the 1970s. He is famous for many series and expositions of Scripture. Perhaps he's most famous for his exposition of the book of Romans, which takes up many volumes when printed out in its many sermons. He spent something close to 14 years preaching not on Sundays through Romans, but he actually preached to packed churches on Friday nights for over a dozen years, the book of Romans. He didn't make up the whole book by the time he retired because of health, he only got through chapter 14 in those years. But when he was preaching near the beginning, he was on his fifth sermon on the first verse of the first chapter of Romans, the gospel of God. 
And as he was there, he began that sermon concerned about something. He was concerned that the people of God would or were becoming so familiar with the words like the gospel, the cross, resurrection, that they weren't paying attention to it anymore. Or, or not just familiar, but they were becoming so academic in their approach to it that they were no longer filled with the wonder, love, and praise of Almighty God and his many works that he had done as are manifested in those great doctrines of Scripture. If that was true in 1955 when he preached that sermon, I wonder how much more true it is today. As we hear of the great things of the Lord, what he has done, what he has given, who he is, are we tempted sometimes to think, I've heard that before, or I want something more exciting, whatever that more exciting thing might be. God brings us to a great doctrine tonight. He brings us to the doctrine of propitiation, a doctrine that might seem hard to understand because it's a word that's hard to say three times in a row the same way. But it's a great doctrine, one of the greatest doctrines that we'll find in the Scripture from beginning to end. For there, ultimately, is the answer to the question that began at the beginning of chapter 2 of Hebrews, where the question was asked, why did the Son of God have to become man? And why did the Son of God have to die? We've been answering that question for many messages over many verses, but it culminates in verse 17 when the answer is given in this way, that he, speaking of Jesus, might be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Tonight we consider the great doctrine of propitiation. And don't be settled tonight until you understand it. And if you don't understand it, talk afterwards. Propitiation. We're going to consider this doctrine under three headings. The prerequisite for propitiation. The promise of propitiation and the performance of propitiation. In this great doctrine, God lays before us his son, Jesus Christ, for us to behold and not walk away, but to behold and worship. Consider first the prerequisite or the necessity for propitiation. What is propitiation? What does this word mean? It's a word that in the New King James Version, just like the English Standard Version that's in the pews, it appears only four times in the English translation of Scripture. It appears in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. We'll look at it later. It appears in Hebrews chapter 2, where we are tonight, in verse 17. And twice it appears in the book of John, 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4. But As you think about what the word means, you can think about it in these three ways. Think about it first as an appeasement. Now, sometimes in our modern tendencies, we're so familiar with history, especially military history, when we think of appeasement, we think of giving a bad guy what he wants so that he won't do what he wants to do to us. 
And so there was the Prime Minister Chamberlain in, in the United Kingdom in uh, 1939, and Hitler was advancing around Europe, and he was taking all these countries, and, and Chamberlain kept giving Hitler what he wanted and coming back and saying things like, there's going to be peace in our time. He was appeasing Hitler, trying to get peace. So for things like that, we tend to have a bad idea in our mind about appeasement. But appeasement is, is merely satisfying, it's satisfying the... The, the need for someone who is angry to be calmed. It doesn't have to be someone who's sinfully angry. And in fact, in the scripture, the appeasement is what Jesus does on the cross in appeasing the Father who has been offended because of our sins. Propitiation has to do with the appeasement then of the wrath of God. And I want you to think about one portion of Scripture, Numbers chapter 16, a very important one to understand propitiation. Numbers chapter 16, I'm actually going to read a few verses here. At the end of that chapter, this is after um, the sons of, of, um, of uh, or after Korah rebelled against Moses and Aaron. You remember, he was offering strange fire to the Lord, and, and the Lord caused fire from heaven to devour him, and the people were, were angry. And even after they saw God's judgment, even after they saw God's judgment on these people that rebelled against God, we pick up on verse 41 after this just happened, the day after, and scripture says this, on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, you have killed the people of the Lord. God caused Korah to be killed, and they blamed Aaron the day after. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud of glory covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar, put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Wrath has gone out from the Lord and a just wrath because the people are complaining against the Lord and against his anointed servants. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran it in the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. And 14,000 people died in the plague before it was stopped. There's an appeasement of the wrath of God through the atonement that was brought by Aaron into the middle of the congregation. Propitiation has to do with the appeasement of the just wrath of God. But here's something else that it has to do with. It has to do with the satisfaction of the wrath of God. It doesn't merely appease, it also satisfies. It goes maybe to that highest level of appeasement. That there is the just wrath of God. And what, what Aaron and Moses could never do in the Old Testament with all their sacrifices, they could never fully, once and for all, satisfy the wrath of God. Propitiation has to do with the full satisfaction of the wrath of God. That's what makes it such a great doctrine. What a great truth, not come up with by men, but revealed to us by God in the Holy Scripture, a satisfaction is made, like we saw in Leviticus 16 on that day of atonement, when the blood was poured out on the mercy seat and on the scapegoat, and the wrath of God was appeased and satisfied. 
But something of a literal meaning for the word propitiation is this, and it's very remarkable. It's the word mercy seat. Propitiation has to do with the mercy seat. Or some have said it's the covering of God or covering of the wrath of God. Because there, Christ Jesus, who's pictured on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and I hope you know something of that picture that Acts or Exodus gives us, there was the Ark that he, Moses was told to build, and above the Ark, there was the mercy seat in the middle of it, and there were the cherubim that were on each side of the Ark, and their wings almost touched just above the mercy seat. And there the mercy seat was a covering covering for the altar, and there the blood would be poured out on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. Blood was poured out, and the word propitiation actually means mercy seat, a covering. It refers to the blood of Christ satisfying the wrath of God. There's four prerequisites that we might say are necessary for there to be propitiation. There must be first an offense. There has to be sin, something wrong, something that leads to the wrath of God who is offended. There must be an offense. There must be, secondly, an offended party. In this case, God himself is the offended party. If there's no one offended, what need is there of the satisfaction of the wrath of God? There'd be no wrath. But there's an offense, there's an offended party, and then by definition there's an offender, someone that sinned against God. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays to the Lord in chapter 9 and verse 8, O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Here was the offense, sin. Here was the offended party, God. We've sinned against God, and here were the offenders, us. We have sinned against you. If we are to think about propitiation without sin, it makes no sense at all. But there is sin, and there is an offended one, and there is an offender, and as Nathan told David after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan went to him to tell him that story about the man with the one sheep and the man with the many sheep. And as David was filled with all fury and anger at this person that would rob the man of his one sheep, Nathan looked at him and said, Thou art the man. And as God reveals his word to us today, he looks out at us, as it were, from his word. He says, You are the men. You are the women. I am the man that has offended the living God with my sin. There is an offense against him. I've committed the offense, and he's the offended party. But then there's one other element, isn't there? For propitiation to take place, there must be a sacrifice. A sacrifice offered to the one who's offended on behalf of the one that offended, that the sins might be blotted out. I ask you, have you offended the living God? Have you sinned against the Lord of glory? There's no coming to the Savior without a knowledge of your own sin and a hatred of it and knowing the need that unless it's removed from you, you will surely perish. Then, then we come to the sacrifice. Even as 1 John 2 says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he 
is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, a sacrifice is necessary for propitiation. Has it been given? And this leads us to our second heading, the promise of propitiation. Look at verse 16 once again. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. He does give aid, brothers and sisters. This is the most glorious truth, that if you take someone like, think of the thief on the cross, one, a character in the scripture and in history that all people probably here tonight have come up before in the scripture, the thief on the cross. Look at this man's life, a life of sin. We would say it was a worthless life because what did he do? He was a a thief, a robber, maybe a murderer. And as he was coming to the end of his life, he was doing it hanging on a tree on a hill with another thief. And he was there not unjustly. He confessed to himself, we're here because of our sin, he said to the other thief. And yet, what did God do? God gave that man aid. There was aid for that man, even in the one who was in the middle, Jesus Christ, who was also nailed on the tree, but not for anything that he had done. God gives his children aid. There is a promise throughout all of Scripture. It's revealed again tonight in verse 16. God gives his children aid. But I want us to notice something else. There's a contrast made between the children of Abraham and angels. Angels have come up a couple times already in the first two chapters of Hebrews. And what do we find here that God says, um, positively says, there's no aid for angels. Have you thought about that? How unique the aid is that God gives to the children of Abraham. You know, people say all sorts of strange things about angels. It's very common when a child sadly dies, a young child, people will say, well, now they're an angel. Those, are not, those things are not in Scripture. They don't become an angel. We don't become angels when we die. God gives no aid to angels. I need aid. I need help from the Lord, and there's no help to angels. There's no salvation to angels. When Satan and his many hosts of angels fell from heaven, there was no salvation for them. There's no salvation now. But there is salvation for the children of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, for the Lord gives his children aid. What a blessed promise. Now, I want us to consider in the negative three things that are not being said here. Notice that there's, there's not a promise to aid the seed of, of Adam, generally. That should catch our attention. It's the seed of Abraham. It's not the seed of Adam. It's not a, a general aid to all people that came after Adam. It's not an aid to everyone. It's not an aid to everyone. It's not even aid hypothetically for everyone. God gives aid to the seed of Abraham. It's a limited aid, if you would. The aid, of course, is going to be the propitiation. We might say it's a limited propitiation. Some people struggle with that term limited, like limited atonement. We might say it's a, it's a definite Propitiation. It's a definite aid to a definite group of people, a, a particular people. 
Not to all people, not to an idea of all people, not to a group of people, just generally. It is aid to specific, actual people who are going to receive this satisfaction of the wrath of God who will see, receive this propitiation. Galatians chapter 3, the end of that chapter is a great statement on the seed of Abraham that we can't help but see tonight. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who is this promise of aid to? It's to the seed of Abraham. Those that are Christ's, those that he has purchased with his own blood, that have faith in his name, he gives them aid. Now, how did this sacrifice come? How did this propitiation come? Christ, the Son of God, became man. Christ became man. The text says at verse 17, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be made a merciful and faithful high priest. In all things made like his brethren. Hebrews 4 verse 15 will repeat that line and it will add to it, yet without sin. So he's made in all things like his brethren. True body, true soul, so that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is, is fully God and fully man in one person forever. He didn't take on part of man's nature. He didn't become a body and not have a soul or a soul and not a body. And all the errors of church history that have gone down through the ages concerning Christ, there are so many of them, maybe not all of them, but many of them are satisfied. Are, the truth is protected in this one verse, that in all things he is made like his brethren, yet without sin. So that the sacrifice might be made that is acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. The only acceptable, pleasing sacrifice for the sins of man is a man to offer himself to God, to satisfy the wrath of God. And no mere man can bear that. So the man, Christ Jesus, is no mere man. He is the God-man, like us in every way, yet without sin, for this reason that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest that he might make propitiation for the sins of his people. This promise of propitiation or satisfaction of the wrath of God or mercy, or if you want, I don't think it's wrong to say a synonym for propitiation is atonement. This atonement for the sins of the people, it was promised long ago. We saw it in Leviticus 16 where every seventh month and every tenth day of that seventh month, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He'd offer the blood of the bull for his own sins. He'd have those two goats. The lots would be cast. One goat would be the scapegoat. The other goat would die for the sins of the people. And there, the blood of the goat that was killed was offered on the mercy seat to cover and satisfy the wrath of God. And then its blood was taken and put on the scapegoat for the people and sent off in the wilderness, showing that not only was the sin paid, but the sin was removed far off into uninhabitable lands, as Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. So far as he removed 
our sins from us. The scapegoat represents the removal of the sin. The goat that was killed represents the payment of sin right there on the mercy seat, showing us propitiation, showing the children of Israel in the Old Testament propitiation. It's the blood of a sacrifice that satisfies and appeases the wrath of God poured out on the very mercy seat. There's another picture of it in Exodus 24, even before the Ark of the Covenant was built in Exodus 25. The children of Israel, they're at Mount Sinai, and and there God gives the law to Moses, and Moses reads the law, and as he reads the law, the people say, what the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses takes the blood of, of many animals, and he has the altar of the Lord, and he has those 12 columns representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and all the people, maybe two million or more, are gathered before him. And Moses takes half the blood, and he pours it on the altar. The wrath of God satisfied the blood washing away the sins. And once again, he reads the law. Once again, the people say what the Lord has said we will do, but they're a guilty people. And so Moses takes the other half of the blood and he he sprinkles it as he throws it out as the picture all over the people because nothing can wash away our sins but the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This promise of propitiation, of atonement, of mercy, of satisfaction, of appeasement, it's throughout the Scripture so that we would not be surprised, but rather expectant when Matthew comes and the Lamb of God comes to history in the person of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our third heading, the performance Of propitiation. For he was a faithful and merciful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. First, we must see in the context of Christ becoming a propitiation, a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, that he came as a willing sacrifice. He came as the high priest, and Hebrews has much to say about Christ the high priest that God willing will talk about in the future. He came as that high priest, but he didn't come merely to offer. He did come to offer, but he also came to be the offering. He came to make the sacrifice, and he was the sacrifice, and he he didn't come under force. He He wasn't like one of those animals taken and against its will killed. No, he came to do the will of his father. For this reason I came so that I might do the will of my Father who sent me. For this reason he came, that he might lay down his life for his sheep, for his children, that they might see that they have that merciful and faithful high priest. He came as a a willing sacrifice. The captain of our salvation is made perfect in his suffering, as we saw a few months ago. But he also came as a vicarious and substitutionary sacrifice. A vicarious sacrifice. He wasn't sacrificing for himself. He was sacrificing for someone else. He was sacrificing for his children, even the seed of Abraham. You see, when Aaron went into the Holy of Holies, he had to go first with that big bull. Before those goats, he sacrificed a bull. What was that sacrifice for? The scripture says first he had to sacrifice it for himself and his family. He had to sacrifice for the tabernacle. All these things had to be covered before he could kill the goat for the sins of the people. Jesus had nothing else to cover because he was the holy, harmless, undefiled, spotless sacrifice. He was a sacrifice in the place of sinners. 
a vicarious sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. There he had no sin. It wouldn't make any sense for the Son of God to die for, with nothing upon him. But he did have something upon him as he went to that cross. He had the sins of many. The sins of his children. The whole sins that you and I will commit our whole lives. He bore them upon himself as he hung on that tree. Every last sin from the womb, even to the grave. It was placed on him. He bore the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He took upon himself the sin of us all so that Galatians can say he became a curse for us. And Corinthians will tell us that he became sin for us, even him who knew no sin. He was the sin bearer. He bore it on himself, all the sins of all his children. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. And more than that, it was an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to the Father. We knew that even before the cross. For on occasions of his baptism and the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well-pleased. Very well-pleased. It was an acceptable sacrifice. But we see it on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross and was, was dying, he cries out, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? All those Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled here in history, in the blood of the Son. Jesus Christ was dying so that the Father might be satisfied even in the forsaking of the Son so that the sins of his children might be washed away in the blood of the Lamb. The propitiation came why? So that Jesus might be the merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful to man. What greater mercy than this? We read it this morning. What greater love has a man than this, than that he lays down his life for his friend? Merciful to man. Faithful to God. Faithful to his promises in Scripture. God did not just look away from sin as if it didn't matter anymore. It wasn't like a judge who might see a murder in front of him and say, I'm not, I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. That would not be a faithful God. It would not be a faithful and acceptable sacrifice of the Son. No, on the cross, Jesus made payment for the sins of his people. Faithful to God and his promises. The Son satisfied the wrath of God for our sins with his own blood. He is the mercy seat. As you sing of the mercy seat, as you read of the mercy seat, Jesus Christ himself is that very mercy seat. He makes propitiation because he is propitiation. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God set forth Christ as a propitiation for our sins. What is the effect? What is the effect 
of such a great work of the Lord? What is the effect of propitiation? I would take you to one text. We're not going to read it because I trust you know it tonight. And it's a text from Luke chapter 16, where we have the account of the publican and the Pharisee going to the temple. I think it's Luke chapter 18. And the publican goes into the temple and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's crying out to God to be propitiated for him, a sinner. That's what he's saying when he says, God, be merciful. Be satisfied with Christ in my place. And the scripture says, the publican left that place justified. Justified. Cleansed, accepted, righteous in God's sight because of the propitiation of Jesus Christ the Son, because the wrath had been satisfied. So the question for you tonight is, will you leave this place justified in the sight of God? I pray each of you came in here that way and will leave that same way. But if you have not been justified, cry out to God for mercy, for propitiation, And Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, will certainly cleanse as he's promised. But there's another effect. The other effect is this. God and man, enemies because of man's sin, are reconciled because of the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. No more enemies, now friends. No more at war, but now in union and communion one with another. Reconciliation through the blood. That's why the hymn writer said so famously in that hymn that we often think of maybe as a children's hymn, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus washing away sins, bringing enemies together. Oh, there is power in the blood. Way back then on the cross when the thief, when the thief was crying out for mercy and to be remembered when he passed from this life to the life of, to come, there was power in the blood, and there is still power in the blood of Christ. He is still powerful and able to save to the uttermost all who come to him by faith, because he has satisfied the wrath of God for the seed of his, or the children and seed of Abraham. But there's one more promise. God willing, we'll get to it next, next time, and that's in verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. What a precious promise. It's it's really the application of Scripture, the, the only application of Scripture that we have immediately in the context of propitiation, that God by himself, through Jesus Christ, aids the tempted. And oh, how the temptations come upon us so heavily. Those fiery darts are very strong and powerful and frequent. Because Christ propitiated the wrath of God for our sins, he is able to help us in the temptations of this life. Able to save, able to help us from this life, even to glory. What a glorious doctrine is propitiation. I hope that we've seen something of the wonder love, praise, and beauty of God in Jesus Christ tonight. And even what a blessing we have as we see it in his word by faith, to see it in the very signs that God has given us, to see Christ dead and risen in the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper tonight. That as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are seeing that 
The wrath of God was satisfied in the body and blood of Christ. The thing is given to us over and over that we would know that Christ satisfied God's wrath for us, all his wrath due to sinners through his propitiation, through his atoning work, through his appeasing the Father, through his sacrifice of himself, because he is the mercy seat. Brothers and sisters, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we bless and praise your holy name for this great work that you have done, the untold, uncountable, unmeasurable sacrifice of your life, the pouring out of your blood, so that sinners, even as we sung, worms like us might be saved. Oh, what are the riches and the depths and the heights and the breadth of your love. We exalt and we praise you. We thank you tonight, Lord Jesus, for being a propitiation to God for us. May we never forget this great doctrinal truth. And from now until we die, may it fill us with love, wonder, and praise to him who died and lives forevermore, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.